You are listening to the teaching podcast of the Crossridge Women Study of Mark from winter 2021. Hey friends, we're back with uh, chapter 12 of Mark. We kind of left off unexpectedly um, last time with chapter 11, just needed to maybe sit a little bit longer in some of um, those applications. There's so much in these chapters, but um, I just wanted to come back, finish off chapter 11, and just sort of walk our way through chapter 12 so that we are ready to approach chapter 13. Lots of you are already deep studying in chapter 13. I just hope that you also continue to see chapter 13 as this extension of chapter 11 and even 12 that that Jesus has come to um, just uh, cancel this temple system, that he is doing something new. And lots of times we read what's happening in chapter 13 and we see it um, just in sort of a narrower lens of like um, what people might call end times um, theology. But I, I really do want you to see it rooted in chapter 11 in this discussion and, and Jesus's parable, enacted parable even, against the temple. And the question at the beginning of chapter 13, then they say, when are these things going to happen after they're looking at these beautiful buildings of the temple? And Jesus says, it's all going to be brought down. So as you're even now maybe um, reading and studying chapter 13, keep in mind that that Jesus is talking to them about this ending of the temple system. And, and don't get too bogged down in um, in 13 and, and worried about that, but just consider what is he saying about how and when this temple system ends, and then just really let it push you forward in chapter 14. We're getting so close to the end, and things are just getting really, um, I guess, intense in terms of Jesus's mission and just the way he is going forward steadily towards the cross. So, um, but let's let's just go back a little bit. Uh, let's finish off chapter 11 here. Um, hopefully this won't take too long, but let's just go through chapter 11 and 12. Um, just to tie up a few loose ends we still might have or questions that we're still thinking about from there. Uh, once again, in the end of chapter 11 there, like in chapter 2, we see the series of interactions between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. They want to trap him, okay? They want to find a way to, to kill him. Chapter 11, 18 says that. So they feared this threat he posed to their position in the community. And now, if he's a threat to their beloved temple and its institutions and rituals that actually sort of keep them in power, then he can't be good for their future, can he? And so perhaps they can use this threat against the temple to their own advantage in getting rid of him. That is what these um, a variety of Jewish leaders are thinking about Jesus. So in verse 27, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders approach him in the temple. This is chapter 11, verse 27. And the Jewish leaders want to know, who gave Jesus the authority to do all these things? And remember, they're asking who gave him the authority um, to speak out against the temple like he like he has been doing, or even just to stop all the temple activities, to turn over the tables and, and um, prevent people from carrying things through the temple, just to cease all temple ritual that day and to teach something else, a new purpose for the temple. Who gave him the authority to do these things. 
And Jesus actually points back to his baptism by John the Baptist, to this voice coming from heaven to show that he gets his authority from God. And we see authority authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to stop the temple system. He has the authority to preach and teach this new way of access to God. That is what he's been saying and doing. And the truth of this stops the authorities in their tracks. To admit his authority is to necessarily submit to him according to their own pious belief. But, but to deny it would bring the wrath of the crowds on them. So they're in this difficult situation because everyone believes that Jesus was at the very least a prophet sent from God. And stirring up the crowd risked drawing attention from Rome and unnecessary intervention from the government. As, uh, Rome's sort of number one priority was this peaceable state. They wanted Jerusalem to stay peaceful in all of their um, Roman kingdoms, really. And as long as peace was held in Jerusalem, then the, the Pharisees could maybe keep this illusion of power and position in the city. So they take the easy way out and they just abandon their questioning in order to save faith with, face with the people and to sort of cling to the stubborn disbelief in order to preserve their quest for power. So as we continue to move into chapter 12, we see Jesus not only answered the Pharisees with a question, he also continues to teach them by giving them a parable. And he did this back in chapter 4 too, after many of their questions. You probably remember this time he, he teaches this parable of the tenants. Now the parable of the sower back in chapter 4 was similar to this parable, I think, and, and that there was sort of this chain of unsuccessful events, all these seeds planted in various soils, and then finally success, a seed is planted in good soil. But in this parable here, we see another chain of unsuccessful events. This vineyard owner sends his servants to collect the fruit from his vineyard, least to the tenants. And each one is, is beaten and or killed in turn. But this time, there is no successful ending. Eventually, the owner sends his, even his own son. And his son, too, is killed. It's interesting that this parable is, is easy for the Jewish leaders to understand. And, and it actually should be because it's straight out of their scriptures using the language of Isaiah 5. It is the story of the Bible, really, in a nutshell. God has continued over time to send his servants, his prophets and his messengers to his people, his people who he has left to rule and subdue his very good garden. And he, he's looking for fruit. And no fruit is found. And not only that, they continue to put to death the servants he sends to them, desiring this inheritance all to themselves and rejecting his right of ownership. And here in Mark 12, nobody is asking what this parable means. Verse 12 said, they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Amazingly, the story prophetically tells the next chapter, doesn't it? The vineyard owner is going to send his own son. He has sent his, sent his own son, and the son, too, will be killed. As we move through chapter 12, Jesus is questioned actually three more times by three different factions of Jewish groups and or leadership. And for sure, the first two of these questions are not innocent. They're questions meant to undermine his authority and trap him into incriminating himself. At the very least, they want him to lose face in the eyes of the people. 
We can see this um, in who is asking the question. So first in verses uh, 13 to 17 of chapter 12, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians asking. They come together to Jesus. And this is bizarre because they, these two groups actually hate each other. So for them to work together, this is a new level of corruption. And then in verses 18 to 27, we see the Sadducees come and they ask a question about the resurrection, which they actually don't even believe in. So this is not honest questioning. We also see this in the way they ask or the words they say. So look first at chapter 12, verse 14. It says this, teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, these are some beautiful examples of Mark's uh, love of, of using irony in his writing here, I think. First of all, they say, uh, you don't care what anyone thinks. And this is, this is such an interesting contrast to the Pharisees who we keep hearing. They're, you know, they fear the people. They don't want to upset the crowd. They worry what the, what, um, the people will think, the crowd will think. Second of all, they say, you teach the way of God truthfully. And this is interesting because they actually don't believe what he's teaching. And yet out of their mouths, they say that he teaches the word of God truthfully. And thirdly, they say, nor do you show partiality. Now, interestingly, this question actually demands he shows partiality, right? If he says he uh, not to pay taxes, the Herodians are going to be angry because he's a political threat to the government. But if he says, pay the taxes, then the Pharisees will be angry because now he's a religious compromiser. But Jesus's answer shows that he is indeed everything they have said he is. He is the author of truth. He shows no partiality and he fears no man. First, he says, bring me a denarius to look at. So what you see on this coin, the denarius that they bring him, is an image of Emperor Tiberius. On one side, it says, has a picture of, of his face, it's his head, I guess, and, and it says his name, Augustus Tiberius, son of divine Augustus. And if you flip it onto the other side, it says, high priest, son of a god. Okay, so just by hearing that, if you know anything about Jewish law, you know that this coin itself is, is in contradiction to Jewish law, as they are told in the Ten Commandments to make no graven images, right? And you know, for the Pharisees to even have one in their possession would be considered that they are going against the law. They could pay their taxes with Jewish coins, so many of them just did that. They didn't contain any images on them. Some careful Jews would try not to even look at a coin like this with a graven image of the emperor Tiberius on it, saying he was high priest, son of a god. So for Jesus to command them to, to bring him a coin is actually embarrassing. It exposes hypocrisy that they can even uh, find one, that they can even pull one out of their pocket. He also says then, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In effect, he says, send it back to where it came from. See, he, he brilliantly both condemns the wrongful image making of Rome, but he also commands 
the Jews to follow the laws of the government of the day. So there was a common slogan at the time that said, pay back the Gentiles what they deserve and obey the commands of the law. Now, the Jews saw this as a call to vengeance. Paying them back what they deserved would, would looked like vengeance, like getting them back for oppressing us or ruling over us. But the irony here is that Jesus is saying, give back their own coin. He's saying, pay it back to the Gentiles, right? And in doing this, in giving them back their own coin, they're actually obeying the commands of the law, that say to honor the authority of God, both over the Jewish people themselves and over the government of the day. But there's more. Finally, he says, give to God what is God's. Now, there's a couple couple ways that scholars look at this. First of all, they say he could be saying sort of something like, you know, humans are made in the the divine image, in the image of God. This was well known from the Torah, from Genesis. In the same way, the coin was imprinted with the image of Emperor um, Tiberius, that, that humans were made, imprinted with the image of God from the time they were, they were created. So he's perhaps saying, give yourself to God, live for God. And the other way that some commentators look at it is they say that, you know, here Jesus is standing in this temple courtyard. He's, he's just sort of stopped all this ritual and everything. He's stopping the sacrifice, sacrificial system. Maybe he's saying, you know, give it back to God. Let him bring newness and transformation. There's this broken system and it's not working to bring true access and communion with God. So let go of it and he's going to do something new, right? Let him do the new thing. He started it. Let him end it. And I think what's most important is that we see here that Jesus is not um, advocating some sort of separation of church and state, right? He's not saying faith is separate from the rest of your life, like give to Caesar what is Caesar's, like government stays over here and like your religion stays over here. That's not what he's saying. He's going to continue to teach in a way, like in the next few verses even, of following God that requires their whole being. Um, I heard Dr. Tim Mackey recently of the Bible Project call this the third way or the way of the exile. And he says this, following God while in exile or under the kingdoms of man requires devotion to God and a simultaneous goal of seeking the peace of the kingdom you are forced to live in. And some of the other ways we hear people talk about it and later in the New Testament, Paul says living in the world, but not of the world, right? Sometimes we talk about being citizens of heaven with a kingdom mandate here on earth. And in the end, it's about this peacefully um, subverting the earthly kingdom's place for power and idolatry and saying, we're not going to go for that. Your view of greatness, like, no, we reject it. And about but in a very peaceful way by by going about um, greatness through service, like Jesus is talking about this whole time in Mark. It's about being untethered to earthly claims on your purpose or happiness, the way the world says that you are purposed or that you become happy, since you're actually a true citizen of a different kingdom. So let's keep going here. Um, in verses 18 to 27, we see the Sadducees come with a question. 
And uh, it's this sort of this long and involved seven brothers. It's, you, you might think it's a math question, actually, um, but it's not. So he, he's talking about um, if you if you did the Ruth study with us, you're familiar with this idea of the Leveret marriage, the law of Leveret marriage. So um, in, in Jewish law, if, if a man was married and he died, then it was uh, his brother's responsibility as the next kinsman to redeem his wife, to, to marry her in order to continue his uh, dead, his deceased brother's line. So to have more children that would carry on that brother's name and to um, carry out his land and to keep working the land. It was, it was tied to that. So they have this question that is deeply entrenched in the law of Leverett marriage. And then and then it gets ridiculous because they say, well, you know, the first brother dies. And so then the next brother takes that wife and then he dies. And so the next brother takes the wife and and she sort of is passed down along the line through these seven brothers. And, and actually, the real question someone should have been asking is like, what's this woman doing? <laughs> She's killing all her husbands. Right. No. But it is that ridiculous. It is that ridiculous. This question is, it, it's a ridiculous bid to discredit Jesus. They want to show sort of to everyone how ridiculous this idea of the resurrection is. Because they want to show that, well, it can't even like work with Jewish law. It conflicts with Jewish law itself. And once again, we're, it's just amazing to watch Jesus answer the Sadducees. First of all, he says that they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And basically, I'm going, it's, he says a, a lot of little interesting things, and I'm just going to very generally say this is what I think he's saying in general. I think he is saying that from the scriptures, you see that the Lord of Israel has always been the God of new things. As in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's always making new relationships, new covenants. He's moving things forward. And what N.T. Wright says about this passage here, he says that Jesus wants them to know that resurrection, um, maybe in the minds of people at that time, and maybe in the minds of some of us, um, is just sort of like resuscitation, and then you keep living the same old life. And what N.T. Wright says, Jesus is saying, is that resurrection is not simply resuscitation, but transformation into something new and better. So it's not just the same old earthly stuff brought back to life. And, um, you know, there's this sort of mis misunderstand that, or, or they are misunderstanding that the story of new life, um, this, is, this is taught through the whole biblical story. And Jesus is saying, like, you, you don't see that. And you also misunderstand that the power of God himself and God's heart is to bring about a new way to live rather than holding on to old traditions um, of man. And that's exactly what the Sadducees were known for, holding on to old traditions. Um, and, and because of that, I think they couldn't see this new thing that Jesus was doing. So he, he kind of sidesteps their question and just says, you know, invites them to see this new thing, the end of the temple system, and a walking forward in a new way to access God. Um, they don't have eyes for it. Finally, in verse 28 of chapter 12, one of the scribes approaches Jesus. And his question is this, which command is the most important of all? 
And when we get to this question after the other two that were so like, um, you know, laden with all this undertone, we might see this as more of an honest interaction, I think, maybe. And actually on the surface, it, it sounds like a question of good intentions even. The scribe is asking, what should I do? Uh, he looks around at all these other people and they're, you know, they're trying to trap Jesus and everything. And his question is like, what do I do? What's the most important thing? What do I do? And Jesus' answer is stunning because instead of answering the scribe and telling him what he should do, he talks to him about what he should be. And Jesus quotes some words that are very um, well known to this scribe and those standing around. He quotes the famous Shema of Deuteronomy 6.5, something that the Jews prayed every single morning. But he does something new. Instead of um, just what's familiar to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He adds sort of another human dimension uh, to this call to love God. And in doing so, he exposes this divided love loyalty that is present among these chief priests and etc who say they worship God who say they believe God and yet they operate with hearts far from him and Jesus is teaching the most important rule the most important command here and the most important truth in that our humanness involves the oneness of all these things we cannot divide beliefs from loves from actions they're all connected. You can't just say these words every morning if you're not walking it out, if you're not living it. And not only uh, does he add this new dimension and fullness to this, the, the oldest and the, the first almost of laws in the Shema, but he also connects the Shema to Leviticus 19.18 and he adds something else. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the thing. Jesus says it's impossible to love God completely without loving your neighbors. And yet we see in chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, that's exactly what um, the Jews were doing. They were carrying out their roles as servants of the Lord God. And at the same time, they were acting elitist. They were putting themselves above others. They were profiting off of dishonest laws that went after widows who could not pay their mortgages after their husbands died. And all the while putting on this good show of their power and their position as religious leaders. They were the bad shepherds that the prophets always warned about. They demonstrated law without love. Belief, disconnected from action. Mind, not connected to heart and to feet, right? Even if they were thinking it and even if it gets to your heart, you still have to walk it out. And this is what they were not doing. And, and I guess that's the question that Jesus subtly, subtly puts back to the scribe here in chapter 12. He, he asks, him a question now and he says how can the scribe say that the messiah is the son of david how can the scribe say that the messiah is the son of david 
And what you're wondering here is as the scribe continues to listen to Jesus teaching and, and asking this question, it's almost like this question could just be put right back to him. Will this scribe believe that Jesus is the Messiah? He said the words. He knows the right answer. Will he believe he's more than just a new kind of king like David was, come to bring Jewish success and sovereignty, but instead that Jesus is God himself? And will the scribe put his faith in him? Will he truly love the Lord, his professed God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength? And will he love his neighbor as much as he loves himself? Because if so, he will find his way into the very kingdom of God. But to give assent to this truth, to be able to just quote it without living it out with every part of your life might just leave you sitting at the doorway. You know, not far from the kingdom and yet certainly not living inside of it. Wow. It's it's truly convicting, right? And so much so that it says here that no one else dared to ask Jesus any questions. Probably because the answers began to make them feel a bit uncomfortable as they probed um, their hearts. Friends, there might be, I think, nothing as dangerous as empty religion. It not only hurts ourselves, but it ends up wounding others terribly. And the effects of it, I think we'd all agree, surround us these days, both in and outside of the church. You do not need to look far to see people who have been marginalized and ostracized and hurt by people who claim religion as their safe den. This kind of empty religion without a whole being kind of love of God is nothing more than just grasping at whatever control so that one can mitigate fears of life and death. And it has very little to do with, with what Jesus has said it means to be a disciple, to, to follow him. It, it has little to do with laying down one's life, choosing to be a servant of all, putting together to death the self's lust for power and position. And we see here in Mark that Jesus came to expose and cancel that kind of fruitless religion, that kind of system. The kind of fruitless religion sort of propped up by the temple system. He came to cancel it, to do away with it completely. And I think we ought to consider our own hearts and our soul and mind and strength here. Are we content in, in this empty kind of religion? Is that what we are experiencing? Sort of a religion that is little more than just simply the way we handle our fear of death? Maybe it's just this safe den that takes care of life after we die. That's what religion is for. You know, that's what kicks in once we die. Or maybe for us, religion is a den of safety that shelters us from all the darkness and sin of our world. And instead of sort of this motivating factor in us engaging in this world and taking part in God's heart to bring light to dark places, instead our religion just helps us stay separate from all that. We just get to be over here and that can just stay over there. Sort of forms a barrier between us and, and things that are uncomfortable and unknown. 
who I think that is convicting to me. The truth is, we have to stop looking like everyone else in the kingdom of man, while at the same time claiming Jesus Christ. We can't fit in with the metrics of this world, like success, popularity, riches, platform, possessions, outrage, anxiety, hatred, individualism. We can't go on any longer as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, as the global church, his body even trying to root ourselves in these kinds of earthly metrics because they will not bear the fruit of the kingdom of God. There will be no peace. There will be no love. There will be no joy. There will be no unselfishness, kindness, goodness, etc., etc. The tree will remain empty. That's a call to us. But chapter 12 ends with a beautiful picture. In spite of um, an empty tree, this empty temple system and examples of so many who look as though they follow God, look as though they should be bearing fruit. They keep up the appearance at least, and yet there is no fruit to show for it. In spite of that, in verses 41 to 44, we see an illustration of real and genuine faith. Dare I say even love. We see a poor citizen of Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? We've had all these um, elite and wealthy and then um, leaders who have position in the Jewish community come to Jesus. And now he points out a poor citizen. And not only that, she's a woman, a woman countercultural. Not only that, she's a widow. In their eyes, that's probably the lowest even kind of woman, right? Um, you know, outside of, of, of Judaism, a, a woman really had no place, uh, you know, or no worth or, or position outside of, you know, relationship in a family and, and with a husband. And here, Jesus gives this beautiful illustration of genuine faith and love as a poor woman who's a widow. This is upside down kingdom um, metrics. Right there he's saying, look, at this is my kingdom. This is my servant. This is who's in the kingdom. And we see this picture of generosity that's also... He- so contrasting to the story we um, read not long ago about the rich young man. And what I noticed in reading this this um, story this week is that this is not, you know, a story about um, giving more at church, right? That we should be giving more. I think that's how I heard it in Sunday school. That's that's what I thought it meant. And her contribution is 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 shown it's not greater than the rich people before her it's not and yet it is jesus says that in giving out of her poverty she is giving more in fact jesus says she's giving all she has and then he repeats himself all she had to live on and he says it like that because in effect he's saying that she's giving her life her whole life and I think it's a contrast to the beginning of chapter 12. Look at what she's doing. She's giving her whole self to God. Give to God what is God's. She's doing it. 
it doesn't look like much. They would maybe say it doesn't count for much, but she's giving it. And the result is proper worship. Proper worship. Unlike the empty temple rituals, this is proper worship. This is real love. And I think the whole point of chapter 11 and 12 might be God's desire for proper worship for people having access to him that is not about ritual or or lists or or any sorts of tradition but just about access to communion with god out of love just presenting ourselves to him giving our whole self to him out of love and that's what real love and worship is it is giving up one's life he is worth that kind of worship. And not only that, but this is exactly what Jesus is about to do, isn't it? Give his life all he has out of love, not just for the widow either, but for disciples who don't understand, for scribes who are on the fence, for Pharisees who think they don't need him and Sadducees that think he's absolutely ridiculous. He will die for them. And this Thinking about this led me to my last sort of bit of application out of this chapter this week. I, I really noticed the way that Jesus responds to these very wrong motivated Jews with questions to draw out thinking and truth. And this is so countercultural to nowadays, isn't it? Like, you know, we don't want to ask questions of those who we see in error, we want to give them the right answers. But Jesus actually does not operate that way. And he's God. I think it's because their questions don't scare him. He's not surprised by blindness to the truth. It's one of the reasons he came. To overcome the blindness of sin and bring sight. He's actually just more concerned that the heart's of these men are turned towards him. He desires that, even in their stubbornness, even in their rejection and disbelief of him. And so the questions he gives tend to probe and point in a direction. He's giving them opportunity for movement rather than just condemning and abandoning them in foolishness. And this is not my tendency. I realize this week I'm much more likely to just call out people's error or even worse, write them off as hopeless and then avoid talking to them completely. But as I study Jesus' interactions in Mark, it has me thinking about ways I can more lovingly and I think fearlessly even enter into conversations with those who believe differently than me. This has never been something I'm good at. But I've, I've begun to think about ways that I too might probe at sort of deeper motives and contradictory ways of thinking. What might it look like if I seek to continue these hard conversations for the sake of relationship rather than fearfully controlling others with my right answers or considering them foolish and pridefully continue in, in my unloving attitude towards those who are made in the image of the God that I profess to love. And along these same lines, I noticed this week that Jesus tends to reject either or questions. Not only do we want to give right answers, we actually want others to give us the easy and right answers. 
I think it's so we can just quickly move on, having somehow bettered ourselves with just like a more acquired knowledge or this gold star in the case that our right answer was affirmed even. But if we've learned anything from Mark, I hope it's that it requires complex consideration to follow Jesus, to be a thoughtful disciple. Wrestling is more often the way to true and saving belief, right? Well, this has been encouraging to me in the midst of my continued lack of understanding or slow sanctification, maybe, in some of the areas of my life. More recently, I've sort of been thinking about the implications that this has for me as a parent, watching my own kids be formed in faith. More and more, I see the scary truth in front of me that at some point, my children must possess their own true faith. And you know, it sounds good and we all affirm it, but but do you know how terrifying that is? They can't just take my right answers. They can't just take my beliefs and walk forward. That's not living faith. And to be honest, it won't take them far. Genuine faith is about grabbing hold of belief and choosing to hold on to it amidst your own difficulty and storms. I think it's sort of like Jacob found out in the book of Genesis. It takes wrestling and asking the questions for yourself and considering the complexities and then choosing to hold on to belief and, and asking him to transform it into actual faith and understanding. It's asking God to to bind us to himself, to grow true and living relationship and unity with him in every part of our being. And that is actually what I need to be on my knees about every single day when it comes to my kids. Well, that's a lot of application, isn't it, from a few verses. So let's end there. with a few questions for reflection. And hopefully, as we, as we go on, they'll continue to probe and lead us to even ask better questions from our own hearts. Number one, in what areas Might the Holy Spirit be convicting me of propping up dead religion rather than living and fruit-bearing faith? Am I content to continue trying to just attach fruit to my branches myself? Will I confess to him and ask him to bring life and renewal to me? Question two. Where is it that I might be trying to separate out my faith or my belief from my actions? Where's their disconnect? Ask God even now to show you where you might need to love him with your whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And finally, Who is someone God is bringing into my life these days? Maybe someone who I keep seeing as wrong or um, 
Or maybe I'm avoiding conversations or just trying to out-yell them with the truth. What might it look like to approach these conversations in a way that, like Jesus does, loves those who are off track? How might that change our interactions even online? As we consider those questions this week and keep going in chapters 13 and 14 of Mark, Let's just pray and once again ask Jesus to to give us the gift of faith. Let's pray. God, we know that you are truthful, that you do show no partiality. You always teach um, the truth of God and in you there is no deceit. God, help us um, just to see this picture, this image of a true disciple, one who loves God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, enacted in Jesus, lived out in the pages of Mark in Jesus. It's, It's beautiful. And I just pray that we would be motivated. Um by what we see and hear, by, by the beauty and love and peace that we see um, on display in the life of Jesus, that, that we would lean in closer, um, that we would follow closely, that we would ask the questions, that we would beg for faith and sight and healing. Lord, open our eyes as we move forward into the final chapters of this gospel, as we see once again what it is you have done for us, the way that you have brought about salvation. Would you help us to see it afresh with new eyes? Take away all the baggage or preconceived notions that we have and just by your spirit, breathe new life into us when it comes to our understanding of the gospel. And let it just help us to, or cause us to live in a way that is totally countercultural to everything we see in the kingdom of man as we walk here. Thank you, God, that you faithfully teach us by your spirit through your word. Would you please continue to do so? In your name we pray.